Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I was admitted into the emergency room about 20 minutes after my dad died. I was not prepared for my dad to die. He was only 68 years old, and I was certainly not expecting to have to go to the ER. Well, let me back up for a minute. You see, about a year before this night, my dad started throwing up everything that he ate. He went to many doctors and had lots of scopes and tests, but nobody could figure out what was wrong with him. One doctor said, well, let's take out his gallbladder, and that really didn't help. And then other doctors said, well, maybe you're allergic to dairy or gluten. After a few months of this, my dad was so weak that he had to go into the hospital. Another doctor who had just happened to be on call that weekend took a look at my dad's charts. And he said, you know, I am the only one in the area who does these longer endoscopies. I may be able to see something that the other tests have missed. Can I take a look? So, sure enough, because this doctor was able to go a little bit further in than the other scopes, he found the obstructions that could not be seen from those scans. It was cancer. They called it an apple core obstruction. It was right in the small intestines. Apparently, it's very rare. The doctor thought that he could successfully remove it, but the surgery would be extremely invasive, and it would be a few months of recovery. So they performed the 10-hour surgery on my dad, and it was successful. We were all very hopeful during the three months that he spent in a rehabilitation hospital. He was back home for about a month, and then things started to get worse. He was in and out of the hospital until he suffered a few strokes in August 2017. Two days into this hospital stay, hospice workers were assigned to us. It was then that we knew. The cancer was back, it had spread, and it did not look good. My mom, my sister, and I had spent that day in the hospital with my dad. We had gone out for dinner, and then I drove home to put my girls to bed. On the way back to the hospital, my mom called me and she said, Sonia, dad's not looking really good. And sure enough, when I got to the hospital, my mom and my sister were waiting outside of the room and my mom said, Sonia, dad's gone. So we just kind of looked at each other and then went back into the room to, I don't know, see him one more time or just say goodbye. I was overwhelmed, and my body started to react to what my brain could not yet process. I started to feel this sharp pain in my chest, and I tried to ignore it, but the pain started to move down my arms, and my hands, and my feet, and this, even the sides of my face started to feel really numb and tingly. I tried to tell myself to just calm down, it's okay, it's going to be fine, this is not the time to be freaking out. Well, my positive self-talk failed to calm me down. And eventually, I look at my mom and I say, 
I think I'm having a heart attack. <laughs> okay, so pro tip, unless you're sure you're having a heart attack, don't just casually muse out loud that you're having one if you're standing in a hospital room. As soon as I said that, all the doctors and nurses ran out of the room. The nurses immediately brought in a wheelchair, and I'm taken to the bottom floor and checked into the ER. Throughout the last weeks of my dad's illness, I was praying a lot. I was asking God to give him 10 more years. I don't know why I picked 10. Maybe because it seemed reasonable to me and not too greedy. My dad was only 68, and he had so much more life to live. He was not perfect, but he loved Jesus, and he had a very authentic relationship with him. As I was wheeled alone into the room where they were going to do the EKG on my heart, I started thinking about the last conversations that I had with my dad. It was at his house, and he was sitting in his rocky, lazy boy recliner, and I was sitting on the floor in front of him, I, and I can't remember exactly why that was, but at this point, his mind was kind of coming and going, and he said, Sonia, I think the Lord is done with me, but I don't want to be done. I feel like I'm a tool laying at his feet like I'm a hammer, and he won't bend down and pick me up. My dad loved hearing stories about Restore during this time. He loved what was going on at our church and all the different people that were coming together. He told me that when he got better, he wanted to see about coming to our church and maybe leading a group of old fogies, as he liked to call them. You know, I'd love to show you a photo of my dad and I taken just a few years before he died. My dad encouraged my sarcasm and invited me to always question authority. I got my love of photography and cats from him. My dad taught Sunday school when I was growing up, and he was always the first person to be called in if the pastor needed a substitute to preach on Sunday morning. I had dared to possibly dream of getting to do ministry with my dad. All of these thoughts were racing through my mind as they stuck the little electrodes on me to start the test. It was a dark, dark time. <clears throat> In fact, as I was thinking back on it, I thought of that term, a dark night of the soul. Now, I know it sounds super dramatic, but have you heard that term before? I wasn't sure where it came from, so I Googled it, and I found out it's actually a poem written in the 16th century by a Catholic monk named St. John of the Cross. The dark night of the soul is a phrase generally used to describe any type of dark period where you feel depressed or lost and lonely. It can also describe a spiritual crisis where you start to question everything that you believed in and things in life might seem meaningless and empty. For me, this term does not necessarily mean clinical depression, although I'm sure that can play a part of it. I have struggled with diagnosed depression for most of my adult life, and I've been treated with therapy and medication, both of which I highly recommend. But this event is a, was a different sort of darkness. That night was a very dark night for me. So I have to ask, have you experienced a dark night of the soul? 
<laughs> I wish she could say, nope, actually, son, you have no idea what you're talking about. Sorry. But I'm not so naive. I know that if you've been alive for any length of time in this world, you have experienced some stuff. So what's happened in your life? What was so big and awful that if you believed in God, it made you doubt him? Or if you didn't believe in God, it made you question, what is even the value and purpose of life? Have you experienced a time when not even your closest friends and family could seem to help you or offer comfort? They couldn't break into that dark bubble that you were in. Maybe that was a dark night of the soul. Maybe when you got a certain diagnosis or when you sat in a room with your boss in HR and were let go from the job that you loved. When you discovered your significant other's betrayal. When you saw the police headlights flashing in the rearview mirror and you knew that you were guilty. How did you make it through that time? Who did you go to? Who did you lean on? And did it help? In the darkest times in our lives, how are we supposed to cope? In the midst of paralyzing fear, pain, desperation, or regret, how do we get enough strength to move forward? Most of us just stuff it down or engage in numbing behaviors. We just try to let time pass and just continue to carry a heavy burden on our shoulders. Is that the best that we can hope for? Is that what God wants for us? Are we just destined to suffer because we live in an imperfect world? Well, God knew that we would experience great times of sadness and pain. In fact, Jesus himself went through a dark night of the soul, the night before he was crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane. This event was recorded in four different accounts by Jesus' friends, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'm sure you've heard of them. And I think that this night is a beautiful example <clears throat> of what we can do when we face our own pain. We'll look at three of these accounts as we trace out Jesus' dark night of the soul. If you have a Bible or your phones and you want to follow along with me, type or turn with me to the account of Matthew chapter 26. Now, Matthew was a tax collector, and he was one of Jesus' closest friends and followers. Jesus had just finished his meal, the Passover, with his friends, and had been trying to let them know of these things that were about to happen, that he was going to have to die. But his friends are still kind of confused about what it means when Jesus says he will rescue his people and establish God's kingdom on earth. Let's read in Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The Garden of Gethsemane is a quiet, peaceful orchard that's filled with olive trees this is a usual place where Jesus would go to pray and spend time with God. A big group of the disciples were with him, but Jesus left this big group of friends and picked only three guys to continue walking out with him a little further away. The guys he picked were Peter, James, and John. Now we assume that these were some of his closest friends because Jesus specifically calls them to go with him and be with him during this time. 
As they walk away from the group, the Bible tells us that Jesus started to feel troubled and distressed. This is when Jesus started to sink deeper into his dark night of the soul. He says to his friends in verse 28, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed. So at this point, Jesus leaves his three closest friends and steps into the darkness to talk to God by himself. He asks his friends to stay close by, to stay awake and pray. But now Jesus walks on alone and falls with his face to the ground and starts praying. I think that this posture is so significant because it shows how completely distressed and broken he is. I mean, usually Jesus, he's the strong one, right? I mean, he's the one who is not shaken. We know that Jesus is both God and man. But at this point, we see his humanity clearly revealed as he is overwhelmed with panic and fear, thinking about what lies ahead of him. He's overwhelmed with the thought of having to face his death on the cross the next day. So when Jesus is in crisis mode, what does he do? Let's keep reading and find out. In verse 42, Jesus prays, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, but not as I will, but as you will. This is Jesus praying begging God to find another way. In the scripture, the cup is a term used to describe God's justice, his judgment, and even his wrath. This cup was supposed to be poured out on the people who have rejected God, but instead the plan is that Jesus will drink this cup. Jesus is saying in this moment that he does not want that to happen. I'd like to pause here just for a moment and read an excerpt from the children's storybook Bible. Because I'm a kids and family pastor, I spend a lot of my time figuring out how to explain Jesus and his life in the simplest terms so that kids can understand. This description just makes this night come alive for me, and I hope it will for you too. Jesus walked alone into the dark. He needed to talk to his heavenly father. He knew it was time for him to die. They had planned it long ago, he and his father. Jesus was going to take the punishment for all the wrong things anybody had ever done or ever would do. Papa, father, Jesus cried, and he fell to the ground. Is there any other way to get your children back, to heal their hearts, to get rid of the poison? But Jesus knew there was no other way. All the poison of sin was going to have to go into his own heart. God was going to put into Jesus' heart all the sadness and brokenness in people's hearts. He was going to pour into Jesus' body all the sickness in people's bodies. It would crush Jesus and break his heart in two. Violent sobs shook Jesus' whole body. I just think that clearly describes the emotional turmoil that Jesus was in. But then as he continues to pray, he says to God, not as I will, 
but as you will. Jesus prayed for another way. But above that, Jesus put God's will and God's plan for him ahead of his own wills and desire. It was more important, it was most important to Jesus that God's will be done. At this point, maybe Jesus feels a little bit of peace or resolve because he gets up from praying and he walks back to see his three friends. Maybe he wanted to pray with them or to share with them what he felt God was saying to him. But when he gets there, he finds them all asleep. And he says to them in Matthew 26, verse 40, Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. Oh, friends. Can you relate to this? I mean, come on, you have to be able to relate to this. At some point in your life, you have asked someone for help or support. You have asked them to do something or to stop doing something, and then you've gone off by yourself to take deep breaths, to try to calm yourself down, to go to God and pray. And then you come back, and the people who were supposed to be there for you are asleep, or they did not do what, they asked, what you asked. They have completely dropped the ball. And all of this peace and resolve that you had managed to cling on to disappears just as quickly as it came because of the disappointment of being let down by people who are supposed to support you. Has this happened to you? I I think it's almost funny as Jesus sees them sleeping, yells at them in some frustration, and then turns right back around and walks away to pray again. What does Jesus do when he's in crisis mode? He goes to God, his Father. Jesus knows that God is the only person that can comfort him. Jesus knows that even if his friends really want to support him, that they're only capable of so much. They're only human, and it's been a long day, and they are tired. I mean, these guys are emotionally exhausted at this point. Have you ever expected people to do for you? what only God can do for you? I'm going to say that again. Have you ever expected people to do for you what only God can do for you? Then you understand the disappointment of being let down. But Jesus knew that surrendering to God is what unleashes God's power. So Jesus goes back to God and prays again. Let's read in verse 42. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it. May your will be done. He gets up for the second time and he walks back to his friends and again finds them asleep. So he goes away again and prays one more time, the third time, because he knows that surrendering to God's will is what unleashes God's power. In Luke's account of this night, chapter 22, verse 42, The last time that Jesus prays, prays, he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed even more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus is wrestling with his humanity here. 
his body and his emotions are reacting as his brain tries to understand and fully accept what's happening. But we see that it is in surrendering, completely surrendering to God's will, that Jesus is given the strength to get up and continue and do what he knows he has to do. Completely surrendering to God's will is what unleashes God's power in your life. The third time he walks back to his friends and they're still asleep, but this time Jesus has been made strong and ready to face what lies ahead of him. In Matthew 26, 45, he says, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. This is how Jesus made it through his dark night of the soul. By surrendering to God's will. And amazingly, this is how we get through our own dark night of the soul too. Surrendering to God's will is what unleashes God's peace, his power, and his presence in your life. So you may be asking, well, what does it look like to surrender to God? How do you do that? Now, this may be something you've done before, or this concept may be completely new to you. And I get it. Look, that word surrender, if we're honest, it has some negative connotations. I mean, you might think that that means you have to go like limp in passive, powerless submission to God. But that's not the case. Submitting to God is an active stance. It's like a runner waiting to be past the baton. You are actively anticipating what God will do, and it's a positive thing. It means that you're trusting the Lord and confidently leaning on him. It looks like letting go of your own agenda and waiting expectantly for God to show you his agenda. Maybe for you, that would be writing on a sticky note the prayer that Jesus said in the garden. Not my will, but your will be done. Posting it on the dash of your car or in your bathroom mirror where you'll see it every day. Maybe it's reading the Bible or attending a church like Restore that will help you discover the good plans God has for you. If you're still not sure about this God thing and this prayer just seems too much of a stretch at this point, that's okay too. I invite you to start by just being open to looking for ways that God has and is showing up in your life. If you're willing Ask him to help you see it. That might be the best first step for you. Whatever you choose, please don't miss it. Don't miss the strength that is available to you by surrendering to God. If you do, then you are missing out on the most powerful help and comfort available to you in your darkest days. You'll be passing up God's peace, and his peace is the one that passes all understanding. That means that he can give you a peace that doesn't make any logical sense given the circumstances that you're in. Well, if you're wondering, it turns out that I was not having a heart attack the night when my dad died. My EKG was fine. It was only an anxiety attack. 
man, I thought I had experienced anxiety before, but it was nothing like that Mack truck that flattened me that night. My thoughts continued to race that night, but they kept bumping into this one truth, this one prayer that calmed me. And I prayed it almost as often as I was breathing in and out. God, not my will, but your will be done. I trust you, your will, God, not my will, not my dad's. Now, let me be clear here. I do not believe that my dad getting cancer and dying at age 68 was something that God inflicted on him or even wanted to have happen. In fact, I doubt that it was God's perfect plan A for my dad's life. Some things that happen are a result of actions that we ourselves or others have taken, or they're a result of the general brokenness of this world. However, we can be sure that if we surrender to God, he can take any circumstance and turn it around and use it for our good and for the good of his kingdom. The scriptures say in Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Now, this does not mean that everything that happens to us is good, but if we allow it, God will use these things to bring about good. You know, that was my dad's favorite verse. <laughs> I guess some people would call it his life verse. He had Romans 8.28 on plaques in his office, on coffee cups, on bumper stickers, on t-shirts. Even at his funeral, it was printed in the program and read during the service by Pastor Zach. I never specifically asked my dad why this verse meant so much to him. But thinking back now, his childhood, which he mostly refused to talk about, was a very difficult one. I believe that my dad clung to that verse as he was the first generation in his family to step away from poverty, addiction, and abuse. In fact, by submitting to God's plan and his will, we get to be participants and be co-creators in bringing his kingdom to earth and a part of his kingdom in heaven. I mean, how exciting is that? I don't know about you, but I, I can't think of anything better in my life than to be a part of that. That's why Jesus taught us to pray and prayed this himself in the garden that night. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't believe that our purpose ends when we leave this earth. Jesus tells us that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And I'm not exactly sure what that looks like, but I can't wait to see all the ways that the Lord used my father's death for good and for his glory. Friends, God has promised to be with us when we go through these dark nights of the soul. It says in the scripture of Psalms, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Can you imagine if we allow it, our dark night of the soul can be a transition that we make from depending on our own strength to completely depending on Jesus. Surrendering to his will and fully trusting in him is the only way to open the floodgates of his presence. 
This is not something that is one and done either. Even today, almost four years later, when a wave of grief washes over me, I take comfort in surrendering to God and trusting that His will is greater than my own. It is a continual opening of our hands and laying down that red hot pain that we carry. When we are broken, in the middle of a panic attack, when you're walking through your dark night of the soul, Jesus shows us in that night in the garden that we can ask, we can pray, we can say, God, my Father, please heal me, fix this, protect them, stop that from happening. But even if you don't, even if you don't, even if your will is different from my own once, I choose your way over my own. I want your purposes to be accomplished in my life, and I trust you. Within these moments is an opportunity, an opportunity to draw so close to God, maybe closer to him than you have ever been before, to rely on him for peace and comfort and strength. Surrendering to God's will is what unleashes God's peace, his power and presence in your life. So the next time you find yourself in the dark night of the soul, trust him, wait for him, ask him, throw yourself on the bathroom floor if you have to, but surrender to him, trust him. Our God answers and he will rush to your side with peace, an incomprehensible love. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for your example in the garden. Thank you for showing us your humanity and how you suffered with worry and dread and what you did about it. Lord, please remind us that we are waiting, that you are waiting there for us in our darkest nights. You're waiting to pour out your peace and your power and your presence if only we ask. Help us remember to let go of our worries and control and invite you to do what's best for us. You are a good God who wants good things for his kids. Help us to trust you more and more each day. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.